0: Uh, like I said, we're going to turn now to, uh, to God's Word. Uh, Philippians is where we are for the, uh, the duration of the summer. We will be. It's in Philippians that uh, we discover a great deal of things. We talked about uh, in previous weeks how we shouldn't find our happiness in things that can be lost. Uh, we, should, we should find our joy. We should seek to find our joy and fulfillment and happiness in things that cannot be lost. And so we're now looking to uh, the Word of God and to the God of this Word. Let me ask you a question as you're turning. By the way, it's on page 980, our text this morning in Philippians 1. A question for you. Do you believe that there is something or someone, something worth dying for? Let's just shift that a little bit. Do you think there is something worth living for? It's it's kind of a silly question. Of course there is in your life. That's why you have your priorities. That's why you have your schedule. That's uh, reflected in how you spend your 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 money and your energy. All of these things show up. The, our priorities convey that we do believe there are things worth living for, uh, and in many instances even dying for. Uh, don't worry, by the way, the application for today is not become a missionary and go die for Jesus. Uh, that might be a good uh, a necessary application. I'm not trying to say everybody should do that uh, or be in prison for Jesus. No, what I want to say uh, this morning and what I want to, to drive at are two things. Uh, one is, is just I want to take a sincere but brief look, first of all, at uh, the, the worthiness of Jesus and the worthiness of living for Jesus. And the next thing I want us to consider is the worthlessness of trying to just live for ourselves. So would you stand with me as we look at God's word? Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read just a few verses beginning with Philippians 1.12. Hear this. This is God's word. I want you, Paul writes, to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brethren, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? What then? Verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask his help. Father, right now we pray that you, uh, first of all, Lord, that you would forgive us our sins. Uh, For they are many, especially the one who speaks. We pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you would help us to see and uh, cherish Jesus as our King. Would you take away our distractions, even as we pray in the King's name, Christ. Amen. Uh, Just two questions uh, to kind of guide our reflection on these verses. The first one is, what good are these chains? Uh, These two are listed in the order of service. The second is... What good is our aims? What good are these chains? First of all, I mean, Paul, uh, some would believe that he was imprisoned prison in Rome, and indeed he was. Uh, we don't know whether that's where he writes from exactly. We don't know for certain. He did end up eventually in Rome at one point in one imprisonment. Uh, We know for sure that Paul, the apostle, as we've talked about in previous weeks, wanted to proclaim the gospel and see it spread. He was a church planter, a messenger, a missionary. He wanted to make it to Rome. He wanted to make it to Rome as a preacher, not a prisoner. (laughs) Uh, but, that, but that's what, what he's going to end up being, whether that's where he's writing uh, at this moment to the church in Philippi, we don't know. We do know that the Philippian uh, Christians did not have text, email, or social media. Uh, they, they, they did care. They didn't have telegraph. They didn't have any means to communicate except by uh, word of mouth or the written word. And so they had sent on, we discover this in, pre- in, in, uh, in latter chapters, that they sent to uh, to go and to uh, to be a, a messenger, to be a person who would bring uh, some supplies and support, a gift. Paul writes to him while in prison. They heard rumors that Paul wasn't uh, maybe doing well. Maybe they, they they don't know. They don't they don't have the details. They do know that he is uh, imprisoned, but they don't know the details. And so they they want to know. And so what does Paul provide by way of details? All it says in verse twelve is what has happened. Right? That, that's. You're like, do you not have more to go off of? I mean, in the letter that he writes back and sends with Epaphroditus, they're curious, is it dark? Are you starving? Uh, You know, uh, are are you ill? Are are you are you OK? He's like, look, whatever's happened to me, it's 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 okay. Paul, as we see here and elsewhere in the letter, is not in his circumstances as heavy as they are despondent. His future is uncertain. That's one of the most painful things in life, right? Whether you have a diagnosis or whether you have uh, wh- whether you have great aspirations and hope, there are days that you're struck with anxiety because you just don't know the future. Not a single one of us does. But when you're in prison on death row, uh, you know it, it kind of takes it to a whole new level. We, any moment, any day, there's no uh, you know the, he has appealed uh, to as on a basis on the basis of his Roman citizenship, but there's no guarantee at any point that he would be released. His imprisonment is one of of, of injustice. He, he doesn't uh, he has committed no crime. He's awaiting an appeal hearing, but he doesn't take on the badge of victimhood, as popular as that may be today. Uh, he doesn't take that on. He instead is not complaining at all. He's under a form of imprisonment or house arrest. House arrest would have been where uh, where Romans would have imp- imprisonment would have been shackled and chained to a guard. So for 24 hours a day, uh, we we do know that oftentimes, as was the case, a Roman guard would have been uh, on a six-hour shift. So for the course of one day, Paul would have been chained to four different men on rotation as guards. And and for him, that served as an opportunity to to testify, to, to have conversation, to talk to them about his real hope and the source of his joy, which I'm sure kind of confused them at times. Well, it must have been taking root. There must have been some fruit born by this. Because what does Paul say here? It's spread. Evidently, verse 13, the gospel is spreading throughout the entire uh, imperial guard about his cause and the person of Jesus. So, my question, what good are the chains? I mean, they're, they're good at, at containing Paul, but that's really about it. Right? Because... 2 Timothy, Paul testifies elsewhere. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.9, the gospel of Christ, he says, for which I am suffering, I'm bound with chains as if a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. It's not contained. It's, it's not being squelched. Paul's chains, as one commentator summarized, Paul's chains gave contact with the lost, and it gave courage to the saved. It was well known. It was well known where he was. This past week, for a few days, we had a chance to visit with some uh, friends down in Jacksonville. And we went out to the beach. And uh, a few of those days, we would see helicopters flying over. We knew the red ones. Uh, That was obvious. That was the Coast Guard. But then we would see these dark-colored helicopters uh, making their way over. And... uh, you know, if it's red, that's always a good thing. If it's gray, I mean, it just depends on what side you're on, right? Uh, It was a Navy helicopter because there's a base and they were running different drills. And my friend who's a military guy uh, said, yeah, you know, at the base, they run these drills, but you notice on the front of that, and we could because it flew right over top of us, even turned at one point, one of the helicopters of the Navy. And on the front, there's a disc and it's part of a uh, radar sonar I don't you know what the right term is but it has these sensors high-tech sensors and the, the purpose of these uh, these aircraft these helicopters is that they go out ahead of any ships and uh, they would provide you know additional the ship obviously has sensors and can pick up things but with the helicopter up ahead it was patched right into the radar system of those ships and and, and those helicopters are equipped with, with missiles and, and, uh, and air defense that they could take out any threat that might be up ahead of that ship as it made its way. And so it's kind of a, a pioneering, it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a heading out kind of mission. And that's where we see, even as Paul talks about in verse 12, he says the advance of the gospel, interestingly enough, that progress, advance, that word sometimes uh, conveys a military term. And, and so Paul is is taking forth as a pioneer the gospel and the message and, and going on ahead. And even in his suffering, God's at work. God's like, oh, this is such a bummer. No, God's saying this is a beautiful thing. And in fact, what's happening here, his suffering, so to speak, is uh, well, verse 14, Paul mentions that his suffering is giving boldness. You see it right there. It's giving boldness that some are are, are more confident. They speak the word, verse 14, without fear. It's almost as if his suffering is giving steel, uh, so to speak, to the backbone of others who are living uh, for Christ and proclaiming and speaking of Christ to others. His suffering is part of God's design and desire. When we see someone, by the way, suffering for a cause that they genuinely believe, and even more so if that aligns with what we believe, it, it builds hope. I mean, it, it definitely begs a, a, a sense of respect. Um, and so we, we see here that they were, uh, they were building, being built up with courage, although some of them were emboldened uh, because of God's love and the love of Paul. Uh, others uh, view it as an opportunity to preach Christ out of envy, he records here, out of impure motives. Uh, We're we're not exactly sure who this group is that he mentions there in verse 17. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. Now, we we don't exactly know uh, who Paul is speaking of here. Perhaps there is some uh, religious politics going on. Perhaps there's a group that are jealous because of his notoriety and his fame. And it, it didn't reflect as much on their ministry. We don't know. Perhaps they're trying to slander him, to tear down his reputation and, uh, and, and his character, but in essence, they want to kick Paul while he's down. That's pretty clear. And even at this point, Paul's not provoked. Paul is not dissuaded. He presses on instead with gladness and with great uh, with great joy, as we read in this this letter throughout. Because and only because his aim is not self. His aim is on Christ. Let's look at verse 18 again. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, in that, I rejoice. So what good are the chains? I mean, they're not pretty good. They're not very good at trying to restrain the the movement of the gospel, the growth of the church, or the joy of Paul himself personally. So my next question is, what good are our aims? I want to kind of move in and out of their world, our world. The aim for the goal for Paul is Christ. And and that's why he doesn't even describe himself. The choice of words is always important when we think about God's word conveyed to us. He doesn't describe himself as a prisoner of Rome or of any other ruler. He says in Ephesians chapter 4 that he is a prisoner of the Lord. Ephesians 6, he describes himself as an ambassador, quote, in chains. It's for the greater cause. An interesting observation I came across in my study this past week, as you look at the book of Acts, when it closes in, in Acts 28, you know, Luke is recorded, the the, the the you know, the vast majority of the latter part of the book is all about Paul's missionary journeys. And in, in, in describing all of that's gone on and all that's taken place, we kind of get with like, you know, of an ending because you're like, well, what happens to Paul? We know that he's... Shipwrecked. We know that he ends up in prison. We know that. But then what happens? We don't know. We don't know what happens at the end of Paul's life. There's some, you know, there, there, there's some traditions and some speculation that he was beheaded by Nero or was, you know, was part of the, the fire that took place in Rome. We don't know. We don't know. But it's interesting that Luke doesn't choose to record it. It's not important because the, Paul ended somehow, somewhere, and the gospel did not. And so it didn't matter. We don't need to know. It's not about Paul and the gospel are not tied. The word of God, as I said earlier, as Paul testified, is not in chains. Of course, the spread of the good news of the church is something that began to take root all around the world, uh, the likes of which nothing has ever been known in, in the history of human civilization. It's just remarkable. Nothing has contained the church. And it's not in light of... Of, of, you know personal and political freedoms that it's gone forth in fact it's so often in spite of those things that's true all the way down through the ages and a, a great example of this at various times it turns even in the last hundred years is in Marxist and communist regimes where they've tried so desperately to squelch the gospel and it's always proved to be a major backfire it's a forced atheism it is a, is a secular opposition. Uh, does it work? Political power manipulation, starvation, uh, imprisonment, it, does it work? No, it does not. One example I'll give Thomas uh, Ogden, who's a theologian, wrote and doing some research many years ago in Christianity to today, wrote an article called The Church That Castro Could Not, Could not Kill. And in this article, he writes about, despite the fact that 35 years of oppression and miserable economic conditions under the tyranny of Fidel Castro, the church grew, get this, tenfold. Tenfold. The things were, things were extremely grim after the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. Things were extremely grim uh, and challenging in Cuba. But nevertheless, as a faithful Christian made note of this observation of the church, he says... The search. This is the. This is the society. First of all, he says the search for meaning in the face of that of, of what they experienced as a whole in that country. He says the search for meaning is just as crucial as the search for bread. While the economic, uh, while the economy around us uh, is falling apart, Christians are living in a state of special grace. It is not difficult for the Cubans to see the difference between the people of God and those who are desperately trying to live without faith. Ordinary Cubans are becoming aware of the church as the life-saving community of hope. It's continued on down. The church is, is thriving and growing in Cuba to this very day. Their aim was like Paul's. Their aim was like the, the church in Philippi even under their persecution, intimidation. Their aim was not survival. It was not self-interest, but faithfulness. Faithfulness to Christ in their calling. Paul's aim is so clear. It's so clear that he is actually content to suffer. He's actually content that his enemies would be a part of the greater cause. That is strange, isn't it? We live... My friends, in a culture that's quite different quite different than anything that Cubans knew in the sixties and the seventies. We have a great it's a great deal easier for us, tempting, meaning easier, tempting to find and to enshrine and enthrone and worship things like convenience and comfort and entertainment and self advancement. this letter Paul is trying to communicate time and again I don't mind repeating it joy but 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 joy through strange and unpredictable portals and avenues and ways that God would actually propose suffering and rejection for the living God Christ and his gospel Does it cost you anything to follow Christ? Does it cost you anything to follow Christ? Does it cost you anything to speak of Christ? Not with your personal freedom, but certainly relationally, it ought to. And that's okay. Yes, indeed, it should. And yes, indeed, that's all right. It's perfectly fine. It's so counterintuitive that... Jesus would actually say this later in Luke's gospel we'll find out next spring Luke 9 he says for whoever would and just think about all the striving all of the chasing all of the all all of the energy and, and 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 drive and ambition that we throw into making a name and making money think about this Jesus is saying this Luke 9 For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then get this. Get it loud and clear. As so tempting and deceitful, the deceitfulness of riches. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? Now, Now Jesus is not against riches. But riches can deceive. You could turn in and trust yourself, serve yourself, entertain yourself, navigate life by yourself. How's that going to work out? Well, it may work out gloriously on the outside, and inside, as you search for meaning, and we 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 just we just flounder around. It's just vain. It doesn't give us joy, lasting, true joy. It's so upside down. It's upside down to think that opposition to the gospel would serve to advance it. To cause it to, to flourish. That it's not. It's counterintuitive to think that my selfish ambition will actually get me nowhere and backfire. It is counterintuitive to think That to surrender our lives is to experience the fullness of joy. This is a hard uh, realization that some people never come to. They never come to understand. But my life, your life, is not about you. I hope you're not disappointed in hearing that maybe you are maybe you need to surrender to Jesus right now today because you will find it prove me wrong and you won't because all hinges on Jesus being alive and indeed he is he either is or he isn't this is either a miserable lie or it's altogether true we should surrender our whole lives to him for the sake of his glory for the sake of your joy my joy But don't make it all about you Warren Wearsby, who is a famous teacher and author, talks about a time in his life when he was in a severe auto accident and he had to spend a long season in the hospital. And in the course of this time, I guess someone, others must have known of this, and someone who is a complete stranger wrote to him while he was in the hospital. He wrote him a note to encourage him. And then he wrote him another note, and each one got even better. And this is what Wearsby uh, writes. He says, when when he, when I was able to get around, he met up with this man personally. He said that he was amazed to discover that this man who had been writing him was blind. He was a diabetic. He was handicapped because of a leg amputation. And by the time that they actually got to meet, he had lost both his legs to amputation. And he... Uh, was called to care for this man was called to care for his elderly mother. Wearsby writes if a man ever wore chains, this man did. But if a man ever was free to pioneer the gospel, this man was. He was able to share Christ with a broader audience than most any of a pastor. Why? Why? How? I mean, this is supernatural. This is not we said it already to find joy is a spiritual grace, not a circumstantial coincidence. This man's life is not aligned to experience joy. And yet he has so much that he can spend time and energy invested in the single minded pursuit of Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, reminding people about Jesus, encouraging people who are in the hospital. Wow. What is your aim where, where is your joy right now or your perceived joy out there or back there? You know, if I could get back to the glory days or if I could just get there on the horizon. Do you scroll? Do you? Honestly, do you scroll through the pictures and the stories and look out horizontally and compare and wonder why can't my life be like so and so? some of you are, some of you are tempted to say no because i got it all made you don't you won't a friend of mine this week said to me this is a great quote he said comparison is the thief of true joy Because if you look out and you say, wow, God, my life's not turned out like I wanted it to. The story is not going as scripted. I, 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 I tell you to look out and compare is to find the, the, the cruelty, the tragedy, the, the, the vanity of envy and jealousy. I, I know it's tempting. I've stepped right into it. And it's robbed my joy. What is your aim? What's your goal? We can. Followers of Christ here today, if you're not, please come to Jesus, please, by faith today. Turn, turn from selfish living, trust him by faith, nothing but the blood of Jesus. But for those of you who are followers of Christ, I tell you this morning, I remind you that we must and we can live and speak and serve Jesus, speak of Jesus, to be focused on him and not fixed and preoccupied on my own security, my own comfort my own reputation, because others need to hear it. The gospel needs to advance, and when it does, it is to our joy. And if you've ever led someone to Christ personally, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you live for yourself alone, then when you suffer, you will will inevitably wallow around in self-pity. The reverse form of pride that it is. This is precisely the inverse of what we see in Paul. What we encounter with Paul. He knew that the hand of God's providence, as sour as it may have been at times, that it was his control, that it was his authority that was on his life. God was working in and God was working through his life. Not not in spite of, but in light of, literally, Paul's suffering. But Jesus was... And Jesus is worthy. Who else is worth it? Right? When we serve, when we're embarrassed, when we put our neck out there, when we have to, you know, we have to make a decision that is, is unpopular. Who else is worth it? Many of you have and all of us will encounter suffering in this life, this side of the new heavens and the new earth. And friends, there are brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are, pers- are suffering precisely because of their faithfulness to Christ. They lose their jobs. They, they, they have family and friends that would disown them. They have to sometimes face grave circumstances and consequences because they live primarily in Muslim and communist countries. They face the threat of imprisonment and worse. Again, Jesus was, Jesus is worthy He is worthy. Jesus was the ultimate innocent man who died a criminal's death on the cross. And then what happened? Game over. Story ended. What a great example. I mean, he was he was sacrificial. No. That's not the end of the story. He was raised. He was raised. And we have this great hope and the resurrection promise that's on the horizon, even the power to follow him this day, this week. May our prayer be that of of John the baptizer. I must decrease and he must increase. Would you pray with me? Father, you, we confess, are the almighty. We just humbly acknowledge that in belonging to you, we are safe and we are sound. It's because you're the Heavenly Father that we have gotten a glimpse of perfect love. Would you please bless, Lord, I do pray today, and build up fathers in our community uh, with hope, with supernatural strength in their high calling. And and, and Lord, as as was the case with Mother's Day, uh, I, I know this is a day that many grieve the loss of precious fathers especially. I pray that you would bring, Lord, healing and peace between fathers and children who are estranged. That They need to know the, the power of forgiveness. For all of us, Lord, every person here, help us this week. Help us to be followers, to be good uh, witnesses, to be ambassadors, even if it were to mean our embarrassment and scorn. And Lord, we do pray for those who are followers, brothers and sisters who are in parts of the world where persecution is heavy it, there's poverty, even imprisonment. Lord, we pray for those, especially this day, who are meeting in small secret house churches. Some of them are trying to gather under great threat in countries like Afghanistan and North Korea and Somalia and Iran, Sudan, Laos, Pakistan, China. The list, Lord, it goes on. You know, Lord, we, we thank you right now for their faithfulness, for their example. Meet them in their trials. Give them strength and mercy. and protection and endurance or give us all endurance we don't want to grow weary in well-doing and we don't want to be confused of your fatherly affection and wisdom and care we pray even now as you taught us to pray